Thank you, um, Pastor Goose and our praise team for leading us today. Um, Pastor Albert is away um, on, a, uh, on a family trip, um, so he was unable to, uh, to, to join us. I want to, uh, again, welcome you here and uh, say thanks for coming and thanks for bringing the church here. Um, if it smells a little bit strange in here, uh, <laughs> we had some of, our, uh, some of our Ecuador mission team members as well as other folks come. Uh, the smell of service is what you smell, the smell of sacrifice and of missions. They were here at uh, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning uh, to wash cars and to tell people that a missions team is going out to Ecuador amongst the unreached peoples, the Kofan uh, Indian tribe out there in the Amazon basin, and uh, so that's what you smell. Um, if you are uh, saddened that you don't, uh, didn't get to get your car washed, it's okay, because there will be a car wash uh, after our service, so um, the Thailand Cell Church is also jumping on board, and they've got hot dogs, and I think it's chili dogs actually prepared, and, and um, they'll make those available. Um, if you would kindly uh, give to support the mission team, that would be really cool. Um, cards will be washed, and then there'll be a raffle um, for great prizes like Froyo gift certificates, gift cards, and um, brand new study Bibles. And you know, if you're lucky, maybe a staple muncher or two might be thrown in there. But uh, a lot of great things. All of this going to support um, the spread of the gospel amongst the people in, in Ecuador, amongst an Indian tribe of an unreached people group um, that we've been uh, ministering to the past, uh, uh, starting last year. So please do make make note of that. Also today, uh, we'll be having at 6 p.m. in the main sanctuary, we'll be having a memorial service for Brother Kenny Ye, um, so please do be there for that, and um, other announcements will be made regarding that um, by our presider at the uh, conclusion of our worship service here. Uh, we're continuing our, our journey in Ecclesiastes as we look at the nature of life and how life is a vapor in the eyes of the anointed, inspired teacher, the wise sage who's been leading us on this journey to try and find what life is about, to find the nature of life, and we've uh, just picked up so many things along the way. And today we're going to talk about, he's going to address uh, an issue primarily for people who would consider themselves or who would not consider themselves, but for all of us control freaks in there. Any control freaks here? Okay, a couple of us. Um, I, I was thinking about this question um, this morning, I was like, you know, I think real control freaks probably wouldn't raise their hand because then they'd be like, I'm out of control because I don't know what he's going to do to me. So um, this is for all of us who would maybe, as you, as you hear this message, maybe you'll discover that you are a little bit more of a control freak than you may think. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we're going to pick up where we left off, verse 2, and then we're going to go through until uh, verse 15. This is God's word as a teacher tells us about control. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? No man has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. 
When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. And this is God's word. Um, Three thoughts about control here that the teacher is going to bring out to us. And the first thing is uh, your king will control your life. That's the first thing. And I I think I need to say this beforehand for those of you who uh, write in your bulletin and stuff like that. There's a uh, misprint in your bulletin. And so the third point is um, messed up. It's actually been copied from last week. So kind of disregard that. But the first thing is your king will control your life. Here's what it says in verse 2, uh, 2 through, uh, through 5, actually. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he'll do whatever he pleases. And since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, uh, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. The wise heart will know the proper time and, and procedure. So, in the ancient Near East, the way that it would be is that a king would be, uh, would be placed, would, be, uh, would, would rise up, and all of the citizens and all of the subjects would pledge their allegiance before God to this king. And so basically what happens is that as a king is installed and you pledge your allegiance to him, you're hitching your wagon with that king and saying, whatever you say goes. Your, your word is sovereign. Your rule is supreme in my life. That's what he's saying. It's pretty clear. He's saying, you're... As you uh, pledge your oath to a king, uh, you're giving the king control over your life. It's pretty simple in those days, but it may be a little bit difficult for us to understand because we don't really live in an era of kings. But what the teacher is saying is your king is going to control your life, so be careful who you make to be your king. Be careful what you make to be your king because the king will always control your life. There's a city out in the Midwest who had a king. And once this king decided, or it was decided that the king would move to this Middle Eastern, I'm sorry, Midwestern city, everyone in the town, everyone in the city was filled with excitement. They cried tears of joy, and they smiled the biggest smiles that they've ever smiled in their lives because the king was coming to their city. And they were filled with an inexpressible kind of a joy that the king was coming to live amongst them. Once the king came, people gave all of their money to just get a glimpse of this king. Once the king came, money started flowing into the city. Once the king came, they made all these great big posters of the king. And in the middle of the city, they had this huge poster and it said, we are witnesses. The king is here. And they had this amazing mural of the king with his hands up in the air throwing baby powder. And everyone came and they stared at this mural and they said, this is our king. And the king controlled the city and the inhabitants of that city. Everywhere the king went, people would follow, and they would applaud him, and they would worship the ground that the king walked on because the king controlled their lives. Here's what happens. When a king 
opens up a Twitter account, it makes headline news, and everyone is like, oh, the king has opened an account. Let's follow his every tweet. The king decided, I want to maybe move my kingdom to another city, perhaps. And all of a sudden, everyone who wanted him to come to their city streamed to this Midwestern town, and they said, we will put our offer, our proposal before you so that you can decide because we want you to come and live and establish your kingdom in our city. And everywhere this king would go, he made news because everyone wanted a little piece of the king. Now, last week, this king decided that he was no longer live in this Midwestern city, and he decided he was going to move to South Florida. And all of a sudden, all of the inhabitants of that Midwestern city got very upset, and they threw their hands up in the air, and people were crying. When the king made this announcement on TV, he took out a one-hour time slot on a very popular TV channel, and he said, I'm moving. And everyone in that, in that city were so sad, and they were filled with grief, and they were crying. Some people were angry. They took the royal regalia of this king, and they burned it in the streets of the city. Other people who had replica royal robes, they sold them. Where they used to be uh, $80, $90 were sold for, for $15. Everyone wanted to get rid of the knowledge of this king from this city. He was a dark spot in the life of the city at this point because he decided that he was going to move. They had these, these things that you stick on the wall called fatheads. They would be pictures of this king. They would sell for $99.99, but they lowered the prices in this city to $17.41. Do you know why? Because that's the year that Revolutionary War trader Benedict Arnold was born, 1741. And their hearts were filled with such brokenness. Because you see, the king controlled their lives. And for every single one of us, the teacher is saying, be careful who your king is because the king will control your life. So the question this morning is, who is your king? What is your king? Where you spend your time, what you spend your time on leads you to a direct path to the throne of your heart because the throne will set the tone of your life. What do you spend your money on? Because your money leads you to a trail that will take you to the throne of your heart. What's on the throne of your heart? Another way to ask it is, what are the things that you have nightmares about? If this king were to leave, then my life would fall apart. What is it that late at night when you lay down to sleep, you cannot sleep because you're having nightmares that this thing is going to be taken from me? We were talking with one of our folks last week, and and they're saying that they have nightmares about their teeth falling out. (laughs) Maybe that is their king. Maybe it's something else for you. You know, what if something happens to my car? Could it be then that your nightmares are leading, are a trail that leads you to see what's on the throne of your heart? If my life, if I were to live all of my life and I would never get married, then my life would be a train wreck. If you feel like that, maybe that idea of a relationship, of a marriage, maybe that's the king in your heart. What do you spend all of your time thinking about and dreaming about? 
a fantasy football or basketball championship, maybe that's the king of your heart. Maybe it's pleasure. If that was taken from me, if someone were to take that from me, it's not only our nightmares, but it's our dreams. What do we think as I, as I dream about my life? This would make my life complete because your king is going to control your life. What's on the throne for you and me? Maybe it is money. For a lot of us in this kind of economy, maybe our king has become money. Whatever is on the throne, whatever is king will control your life. That's the first thing the teacher shows us here. The second thing that the teacher says, second thing, and here's a newsflash, is that you are not your king. You can never be your own king because you'll never be in control of your own life. The second thing that the teacher tells you and me is that you cannot, will not, are not, will never, ever, ever be your own king. Even people who think they are. Remember Muhammad Ali, the great uh, boxer? So many stories are told about his life. He was the one who could float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and had complete control over everything in the ring. And yet outside the ring, the one thing he could not control was his own health. And so this, this DVD came out uh, some years back called Ali Rap. The basic premise, I think, is that Muhammad Ali uh, was the inventor of rap. Anyways, he goes on to say in 1994, he was struck in with Parkinson's disease. And if you see him now, uh, his speech is garbled. He speaks very slowly, and he's got these tremors. And he, he, he mentioned back then that I used to be on top of the world. I used to call myself the king of the world. I'm a bad man, is what he used to say. I'm the greatest. And yet he says, now with all these tremors, with all my shaking, people just, they stare at me, everyone looks at me, and I've come to realize that life really is meaningless. It's nothing. Mimicking the words of the teacher that life is vapor because he realizes that I cannot control my own life. The teacher says, starting in in verse 6, for there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? And then he gives examples of how we're not in charge. No man has power over the wind to contain it. So no one has power over the day of his death. And no one is discharged in the time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. He says, this is how little we have control over our own lives. We can't even control the wind. Some of you who like to go golfing. You may have taken your lessons from whoever it is. You've watched your DVDs and gotten professional lessons from whoever it is, and you've got your, your perfect golf shirt and, and shorts and shoes and, and your, your hat put on perfectly, and you get the perfect set of clubs and the perfect tees and the perfect ball, and you line it up and you think through your head all of the things that I need to do, and you swing, you line up, and you hit this perfect shot off of the tee, and then it goes way off course. Why? Because for all of the things, yeah, maybe that's like some of us were like, I don't need the wind to do that. But maybe for some of us, that's how it is. We've got everything lined up perfectly, but he says, no man has power over the wind. You can do everything in your power to control the way the ball is going to go, but you can't contain the wind. You can't control the wind. As much as we prepare and try to control life, there are certain things that inevitably we cannot control. And so the teacher's telling you and me, you cannot be your own king because you cannot control your life. He says, no man, no one has power over the day of his death. 
We can eat the perfect diet. We can eat at all of the right places. We can avoid all the wrong people in all the wrong places. And yet when God calls us home, that's not something that we have power over. I love how Piper puts it. He says, you know what? If God wants you to stay on earth, then no cancer can take you earlier than that. And if God wants you home, then no doctor can heal you. What amazing truth there. No one has power over the day of his death. No one has power over the day of his death. And he says, and no one is discharged in time of war. So wickedness will not release those who practice it. Those days, it would be a criminal offense. It would be a capital offense if you left during a time of war. And no one has power over the day of their discharge. He's saying there's so many things in this life, and he just gives three examples here of how no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, we cannot control our lives. And he's saying as soon as you realize this, the sooner you realize this, the less stressful your life will be. Don't we spend so much of our time trying to control our lives and our days, and then when something goes unplanned, we get all bent out of shape and we get all stressed out. There are parts of me, there are large parts of me that want control in my life. God planned my day by 30-minute intervals. They say, in 30 minutes, this is what I need to do. And if something goes off kilter, it's easy for me to get stressed out. I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I supposed to do now? I like, if I'm driving, if I'm carpooling with people, I always like to, I always like to drive because I want to be in control. I don't want to be sitting there in the passenger seat saying, can you go a little bit faster? Or you could have, that light was just turned yellow. You could have still gone. I don't want to be like that. I want to be in control. But that leads me to becoming stressed out a lot more than I ought to because there's so many things in my life that I can't control. Last year, when we went on our Ecuador mission trip, we're two weeks away from going, but last year, we had in our, it was our first time going, but we did all that we could to try and control this trip. We had ideas of what it was going to be like. We knew we are going to go cross this river, and we've been told it's a five-minute river ride across this raging rapid, and then we get to the Kofan people, an unreached Indian people group along the Amazon River. And so Pastor Gu sent out an email, and he looked up this group of unreached people called the Kofan, and the picture of the Kofan had these Indian people with a bone in their nose, right? These are the kind of people that we're going to, savages, savages that we're going to be ministering to. For three days, we're going to cross the river, we're going to go there in this primitive area. We looked up the weather in this town called Lumbaki, where we're going to be, and it said it's going to be 114 degrees, but with the humidity and the sun... It's got real feel, AccuWeather, real feel, 171 degrees. We're like, humana, humana, we're going to roast out there. But they also told us that there are tons of mosquitoes out there. So I remember uh, yeah, as we're planning our packing list for this year, I looked at last year's packing list and it said, wear long sleeves. And, and I put in parentheses, there are tons of mosquitoes out there. So we had all this idea of what we're going to do when we get out there. 171 degrees and mosquito-infested weather with these savage beasts who've got spears and a bone through their nose. And so we get there. We fly into the capital city of Quito, and they say, we're going to take a six-hour ride from Quito down to Lumbaki, up to Lumbaki, sorry, up to Lumbaki. We're going to go six hours. The six-hour uh, car ride ended up being 10 hours because as, just as we would have predicted, the road was washed out. There was no road. You're going, and then all of a sudden, there's like a river. Like, what happened to the road? Oh, it just kind of fell. So the six-hour ride turned into a 10-hour ride. 
And the whole time I was so excited. I was like, we're going to go. We're going to be these great missionaries. And and I got majorly car sick in the way. And I think, you know, something happened to me. I started yakking up all over the place. I threw up more stuff than I'd ever eaten in the entire week. I was like, how? I don't know what's coming out right now. My stomach is probably stomach lining and intestines are all coming out. But I was dying. I was like, this is not how I envisioned my mission trip was going to be. And I was just sitting there during, during this two-hour wait while the, where the road was washed out. I was throwing up. I was like, God, I need my wife. I need Olivia. Please send some help. And then Pastor Goose King's like, you all right, man? And <laughs> I had to settle for that, but that was okay. And then we finally get to this place. And our plan the first day was that that day we're going to cross over the river into Sinangwe and we're going to meet the Kofan people. They're waiting for us to have a, to have a meal and they're going to have a welcoming party. But we got there four hours later than we should have. And so I remember talking with our missionary, and I was like, hey, don't we need to go? Doesn't someone need to go? There's a 30-minute car ride, and then going over the rivers. So doesn't someone need to go out there and, and tell these people that we're not going to go? They're like, no, we called them on their cell phone. <laughs> How do people with a bone in their nose have a cell phone? But everything went unlike we had planned. Like, what in the world is going on here? Now, the time we get out there, and we're like, this doesn't feel like 171 degrees. It was about 80 degrees, and there was no mosquitoes anywhere in sight. Like, what in the world is going on? We had to cross this river. Instead of being a five, it was literally like 10 seconds we're in this thing, and we get to the other side. We're like, wow, this is a little bit different than we had planned. And we had that, our, our ministry the first day there, and I remember talking with one of our team members with this little, little boy there. And in every other mission trip I've been to, they said, do you know Jesus? Do you, um, I don't know if it's sabe or conoce Jesucristo or whatever it is in Espanol. And I asked this little boy, and he shook his head no. And for the first time, I'd never met anyone who had no idea, never heard of the name of Jesus Christ. And my heart was broken in that place. I said, we need, we need to come tomorrow. We're going to come with our program. We're going to minister to these people. And so we said, hasta mañana. We'll see you tomorrow as we prayed a prayer. And then we left. We're like, guys, we need to, we, we, I can't wait to come back. And all of our team members are like, yeah, we want to finish doing the work that we did here. The next day came and this flood had, hap- had, had come and the water level had risen exponentially. We couldn't get across the river. Like, what are we going to do? And in my mind, I'm hearing the words again of this preacher who's saying, risk is right for the sake of the gospel. Even if you die and give your life, you've got to do it for the sake of Christ. And so I'm thinking in my mind, yeah, maybe we've got to, we've got to do that. And at the same time, I'm thinking about well, the fact that we've got 12 people on our team and our church that I'm responsible for them to their parents and, and there's this mental ping pong going back and forth. And so finally, we decided, you know what, we're not going to go. We're not going to go to cross the river. And in all of our minds, we're like, what in the world is going on? We have completely lost out on our mission. What in the world are we doing? This is why we came. This is what everyone is praying for. Realize that not everything is in our control. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we realize that, the more we can be in tune with what God really wants to do. You see, the number one rule that every missions training people will tell you is that the first rule of missions is you've got to be flexible. You see, we are not our own king, people of God, because we are not in control of our lives. You can plan everything perfectly for your wedding day, and the flowers can still come late. The photographer could still not show up. It could still rain on a perfectly sunny day. The cell phone could ring right in the middle of your vows. Someone might faint during your wedding. 
All of these things that could possibly go wrong could go wrong because we're not in control over our own lives. We're not. And the sooner we realize this, the less stressed out we can be, the more we can begin to enjoy the present moment that God has given to us. Your king will control your life. We are not our own king. The last thing that we see, and again, this is the the point that's wrong in your bulletin. Um, When it seems like everything's out of control, this is a long point, (laughs) so um, you can kind of, when it seems like everything is in control, you got to trust that God's in control. Seems like everything is out of control, you've got to trust that God is in control. Okay, okay, I understand. I'm not in control of my life, but there's so many times when it seems like no one is in control over this life, over this world. And then he gives examples, verse 9. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There's a time when man lords it over others to his own hurt. And most translations would say to the hurt of others. Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. When you see wicked people, people who do wicked things, all kinds of awful things, and then when they die, people eulogize them, people praise them, people say what an amazing person this man or woman was, saying what's the point of all that? That's meaningless. What's the point of all that? How do you make sense of this? If I understand that I'm not in control, but is anyone in control when things like this happen? And people like Hitler comes up with the final solution to the quote-unquote Jewish problem and exterminates all of these Jews. And then he's praised for it by other people in history. When people like Idi Amin in, in, in Africa takes all these people and, and, and wipes them out, Pol Pot wiping out a third of the people of Cambodia, Stalin killing all of these, these, these uh, peasants in Russia. If he, even... We have a day in October to celebrate Christopher Columbus, and yet many people would say that we praise him in America, but people revile him in other places because of, because of the killing that he did to many Native Americans, the taking of many lives. People said they didn't need a roadmap getting from, uh, from uh, North America, South America back to Spain because they could just see the bodies littered along the river that Columbus had thrown out of Indians that he had taken captive as slaves who died on the way back to the old world. It says, what do we make sense? How do we make sense of all these things when these people who've done these atrocities in the name of whatever they do these things and yet they're praised at the end of their lives? I understand that maybe I'm not in control, but is anyone in control over this world and over this life? It says in verse 11, the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out. Hearts of people are filled with schemes to do wrong. When someone does something wrong and then they're not punished for it, when you get these hotshot lawyers who, who, who take a bribe and, and they do all of these things and crime goes unpunished, then where's the justice in that? I understand that I'm not in control of my life, but there's got, there's got to be some kind of justice. If there really is a God out there, then how is it that all of these things happen in this world? Where's the justice in that? Although a wicked man, verse 12, commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time. It says sometimes wickedness is repeated over and over and over again. A bad dude, an awful guy, a wicked guy does something bad to a good person. Not once, not three, twice, not three times, but sometimes a hundred times before it seems God ever intervenes into the pages of human history. 
the, the, the bad guy, the wicked guy, the bribe, the guy who takes advantage of other people, he's getting rich, he's getting popular, he's getting famous, he's getting praised, his family is growing, he's getting all kinds of money, while the righteous person, the good person, the person who does all these good things, ends up not having the money to pay his or her bills. Where's, where's, the, where's the fairness in all that? Where is God? Where is his control in the midst of all of these things? What do I do? What do I make of all these things? The teacher says he's asking these hypothetical questions based on observations that he's made in this life. He says, I know you're asking these questions because I've seen such thing to be true. And then he says in verse 12, he says, I know the second half. I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Somewhere in the teacher's heart, he had this idea of retributive justice that someday, someday is coming. I don't know when it was. He didn't know when it was because he didn't have the foresight to see the reality of Jesus Christ coming in all of his fullness. But we on the other side of the cross and on the other side of the resurrection see that there is a reason why we can have hope because the word of God tells us that judgment is coming, that the teacher saw only glimpses and a foreshadowing of that future day. We see a little bit more clearly. He's saying, don't get bogged down just by the present moment. Don't get bogged down just by what you see because there's something greater and there's something real. There's something right and justice is coming. And though I don't know how the exact story in your life is going to end, I know that it's going to end with justice being served because God is in control. And he's saying, we don't have to know everything in order to trust in this God because God doesn't always tell us everything we want to know but he tells us everything that we need to know in order to trust another day. And we don't always understand why things happen, but we understand why we trust in the God who knows why things happen. You may uh, remember the story of a shipwrecked man, the lone survivor on a deserted island trying to make it all by himself there. He waited and waited, no rescue came, and so he prayed to God. He said, God, please rescue me. I don't know how long I can stand here with just me and a volleyball to play with. I don't know how long I can do this. I don't think I can do this, so God, please send someone to rescue me. And a day went by and still no rescue. Another day went by and still no rescue, so he decided to make a, a find a piece of driftwood floating in the in the water, and he made this rudimentary little hut in order to protect himself from the sun, to protect his few belongings from the heat and from the possibility of rain. And he said, God, please, I need your help. Send someone to to help me. And so on this third or fourth day, he went out scavenging, looking for food, looking for something to eat to sustain him another day. And by the time he came back, he saw that his little hut had been burned down. And he started crying out to God. He's like, God, what in the world happened? I prayed for your protection over my hut. I prayed for your blessing. I prayed for rescue. And none of these things happened. And the only thing I had going for me has just burned down and I've got nothing. Where are you in the midst of all of these things? Where are you when I prayed to you, when I called out to you? He went to sleep that night under the stars, just crying out in pain and bitterness and anger shaking his hand at God. 
The next morning when he woke up, he woke up to the sound of a ship coming to rescue him. And he was filled with this kind of gladness and this excitement, but the same kind of perplexed lack of understanding and how this happened. And, and he, he ran out to greet these sailors as they, they came to, to bring him on board. And he said, but how is it that you found me? How is it that you knew that I was here? They said, obviously, it was the smoke signal that you sent up last night. We saw it burning in the night, and we came to your rescue. And all of a sudden, he realized that everything that he thought was going wrong in his life was redeemed by the hand of God and the providence of God to work out for his deliverance and for his salvation. Any burned down huts in your life these days? You've yet to see the salvation and the rescue and the hand of God. Saying it's coming. It's coming. Rescue is coming. When it feels like everything in your life is, is, is out of control, saying we trust that God is in control. When it seems like your prayers are not only not being answered, but they're being thrown back into your face, the teacher is saying, God is in control. He's in control. He knows. He's working things out to bring about his purposes, to bring about his plan, to bring about his glory, and to bring about deliverance for you so that you could be living to the praise of his glory. And though we don't see every piece of the end of the story, God's word says you've seen enough to be able to hold on. And again, though we don't know why, we don't understand why, we know why we can trust in the one who knows why. Because on that deserted island, it wouldn't be the first time that God would take something so tragic and turn it out for the rescue of the people whom he loves. Some years back on a cross on Calvary, the cross of Calvary, God took his son and he allowed his son to be nailed to the cross for your sins and for mine, for all of the times we shook our fist at God and said, God, why, where are you? We don't understand your plan and we want to walk away from you. It was for our sins. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. God Almighty took the sins of the world of yours and mine and he poured them upon the wrath of God, upon the cross of Christ and upon his one and only son. And yet on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the grave and rose from the dead. He took this tragedy and par excellence, he turned it into the redemption of his people. That's why we can say, God, though I don't see everything, I can trust in you. When I cannot see your hand in my life, I can trust your heart. When I don't see the fingerprints of God in this, I can see your heart is for me and your heart is for your people and you're working all things together for the good of those who love him. God, when I don't understand why, I can trust in who you are. And I can say that you are good. I can say that you are God and that you're in control and you will work for my deliverance. Until that time, I don't trust week to week, month to month, but I trust moment by moment, hour by hour. That's where we trust. That's where we cling. We've got to lean on him every moment of our lives as we walk with him hand in hand, until we see him face to face and grace amazing takes us home, we trust in him and we seek him, we hold to him, we hold on to the one who's holding on to us. Let's pray.
As we come before the everlasting God who will not sleep, who will not slumber, who hasn't gone on vacation in the times when you need him the most, but he's right there with you. Let's surrender to this God any feelings of I need to be in control and let's entrust our lives to the one who is altogether and he's altogether powerful. He's wiser than we are. He knows what's best for us and is working all things to his glory and for our good if we love him and if we're his. Let's surrender control in our lives to him. And let's also surrender over to the Lord, maybe the burned down huts of our lives. Perhaps some of us in here feel like, you know what, this past week, this past month, these last, this entire summer has just been a series of huts that have been burned down and I've called on God to do this and it seems like everything in my life is marked with disappointment. He's saying, will you trust me? And as he reaches out his nail-pierced hands, will you trust me who can redeem scars, who can redeem brokenness, who can redeem all the hardships of our lives? Can you trust? Will you trust? Would you take my hand and hold on tight? Because I'll lead you home. Let's take a moment to come before the Lord as we respond to his word and prayer. Let's take a minute or two just to pray. And maybe to pray for other people who are going through times of difficulty, times of being out of control. Let's pray a prayer of surrender for ourselves and then a prayer of intercession for others that the Lord would make himself known to you first and then to others. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we respond to his word this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you that there has not been a moment in all of human history that you have abandoned your throne, given it to another, taken a break, gone on vacation, but you are God, you always will be, you will never relinquish or vacate your throne to another. Thank you that you are the everlasting God, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-glorious God who's altogether good, altogether caring, altogether lovely, altogether just. And so we throw ourselves upon that God, upon you, in trust. And when we don't see the answers, may we hold on to the one who says, I am the way I am, the truth. I am the life. And even when we let go, may we feel the sovereign hand of grace holding tightly. You will never let us go. We thank you so much. We love you. We know that you've loved us first. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.